Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When the wiry lead singer took the stage, the crowd of 10,000 alt-music fans was hot and sweaty after spending hours in the Arizona heat moshing and crowd surfing. Their only relief came when water hoses were unleashed from the stage. The singer, dressed in a small straw fedora, white tank top, and black dickies, apologized for the heat and for the fact that he was drunk. Then he and his bandmates closed out the concert with an 11-song set, which concluded slightly earlier than planned. Near the end of their performance, the band's guitarist whacked the singer with his guitar, then chucked the instrument into the crowd. Both of them stormed off the stage as stunned fans yelled obscenities, mad about the shortened set. Despite the antics, the seven-act, nine-hour spectacle blending rock, rap, punk, and funk would become the hottest event of the summer of 1991, and it would set the blueprint for traveling music festivals that would dominate the rest of the decade. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. From Lollapalooza to Lilith Fair, this is the story of the Traveling Summer Music Festival. Perry Farrell's band, Jane's Addiction, came together in Los Angeles in 1985, at a time when bands like Motley Crue dominated Sunset Strip's heavy metal scene. Jane's Addiction challenged the status quo with an alternative sound that blended funk, industrial, post-punk, and classic rock. Their major label debut album, Nothing Shocking, was released in 1988. And along with Farrell's howling voice, the record featured the volcanic guitar skills of Dave Navarro, the propulsive bass of Eric Avery, and the thundering drums of Stephen Perkins. The record includes two of the band's signature tracks, the anthemic Mountain Song, and another one about a heroin-addicted woman with an abusive boyfriend named Sergio. Jane Says was the band's first Billboard hit, reaching number six on the alternative charts. And it was actually about a real woman named Jane. She and her boyfriend lived with Farrell and about a dozen other people who shared a ramshackle Victorian house in Hollywood as the band was forming in the early 80s, inspiring the song and the band's name. Jane's addiction followed up Nothing Shocking with Ritual De Lo Habitual in 1990, which quickly became a multi-platinum monster. Much of that was due to the low-budget video for a song about a habitual shoplifter. Been Caught Stealing was a sensation on MTV at a time when the channel still had the power to drive audiences to new music. By the summer of 1990, Jane's Addiction was fully hitting their stride, touring heavily in North America and the UK. But then in August, when Jane's Addiction was all set to play at the legendary Reading Music Festival in England, they had to cancel last minute because Farrell had laryngitis. The singer was disappointed. And after watching the Pixies perform at Reading in front of 60,000 screaming fans, 
He wondered why there weren't any similar festivals in the U.S. anymore. According to Farrell, that was when the idea for Lollapalooza started to percolate. Farrell recovered from laryngitis and went back on tour, but as it progressed, other issues started to arise. Farrell and guitarist Dave Navarro were often at odds. Sometimes they even fought on stage. It didn't help that both musicians had serious heroin habits at the time. Speedballs, which are a mix of heroin and cocaine, were a part of their daily routine. So by 1991, Jane's Addiction decided to call it quits. But first, they would go on one more tour. And remembering the missed opportunity at the Reading Music Festival the summer before, Farrell and his bandmates launched their own festival. There hadn't been a really big music festival in the U.S. for over a decade. The US Festival, which was organized by Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, was held in San Bernardino, California over the Labor Day weekend in September 1982. It featured some of the biggest acts of the day, including Talking Heads, The Police, Tom Petty, and The Grateful Dead. A second US Festival was held less than a year later over the Memorial Day weekend in 1983. A record crowd of over 600,000 people turned up to listen to a diverse mix of performers. Everyone from Flock of Seagulls and David Bowie to Van Halen and Judas Priest. Despite the huge crowds, the two festivals lost over $20 million and wouldn't be repeated. But possible financial ruin didn't deter Perry Farrell, because he and his collaborators envisioned a totally different type of event. Unlike the US Festival, Farrell's event wouldn't stay in one spot. It would travel to different cities around the United States and Canada. And he promised it would be more than just a concert. He called it a traveling arts and awareness raising festival. Not only would it feature some of the biggest names in alternative music, there would also be an area for local artists and other vendors to sell their items, along with information booths for groups like Greenpeace, Rock the Vote, and the ethical treatment of animals. It was envisioned to be a bit like a traveling circus, swooping into a city with carnies and sideshows, then packing up and moving on to the next one. To quote Jane's Addiction drummer Stephen Perkins, it was a train of freaks. Once we left the town, the town was never the same. When it came time for a name, Farrell settled on Lollapalooza, which he had first heard in a Three Stooges movie, and it meant someone or something wonderful. For 25 bucks, fans got to see seven bands during the 1991 Lollapalooza tour. In addition to Jane's Addiction, there was a hodgepodge of musicians. That's because Perry Farrell hated the way record companies and radio stations forced fans and artists into strict categories. So the acts he picked for the first ever Lollapalooza reflected his idea that the music industry should be more open-minded. The nine-hour show kicked off with the Rollins Band, led by Henry Rollins, who previously fronted the pioneering hardcore punk group Black Flag. There was also the hard-rocking MTV favorite Living Color, the seminal British punk band Susie and the Banshees, industrial rockers Nine Inch Nails, along with the loud and nasty butthole surfers and rapper Ice-T. He was coming off a role in the movie New Jack City and was venturing into the world of thrash metal with his band Body Count. 
Lollapalooza was actually the first time that Ice-T performed this controversial song. Between July 18th and August 28th, 1991, the tour hit 22 U.S. cities, as well as Toronto, and was far and away the event of the summer. At least for everyone but Nine Inch Nails' Trent Reznor, who repeatedly smashed up his equipment during shows because of sound issues. Either way, every venue sold out, drawing over 250,000 fans, with ticket sales equaling more than $6 million. The only other tour to have as much success that year was Garth Brooks' Rope in the Wind tour. Music insiders were surprised at the success for lots of reasons, but mainly because the recession-plagued industry was having a really bad year. In 1991, many headliners like David Lee Roth and Paula Abdul were forced to postpone and cancel dates and tours because of poor ticket sales. So even though Jane's Addiction followed through on their promise to break up after the tour, Lollapalooza continued the next year. And by then, thanks to Nirvana and the Seattle grunge scene, alternative music had engulfed the mainstream, putting Lollapalooza at the center of a brand new youth culture movement. A band that was at the heart and soul of that movement was one of the highlights of the 92 Lollapalooza Festival. Pearl Jam was booked for the tour before their debut album 10 began leaping up the charts. So they were way down on the list of performers, actually taking the stage second, hours before the main headliners. But fans made sure they were on time. No one wanted to miss Eddie Vedder's electrifying performance. His voice boomed as he climbed stacks of speakers 15 feet high. The crowd cheered, arms stretched high into the air as Vedder let go, leaping into the crowd's arms, plunging almost in slow-mo, his body twisting all the way down. Joining Pearl Jam at Lollapalooza in 92 were Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ice Cube, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Ministry, Soundgarden, and Lush. And a second stage was added to the festival that year as well, with a wide range of up-and-coming bands like Rage Against the Machine, Stone Temple Pilots, and Perry Farrell's new group, Porno for Pyros. Plus, there were performance artists, poets, and the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow, which evolved from the grunge scene in Seattle. The bizarre troupe of entertainers included people who could do things like swallow swords and skewer body parts. And there was one guy by the name of Matt the Tube Crowley, who regularly performed a stunt during the 92 Lollapalooza tour that involved inserting a tube up his nose that went down into his stomach from where he would pump out bile. Then a brave audience member would volunteer to drink it. Some musicians even drank the bile, including Eddie Vedder, Chris Cornell, and Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Between the bands, entertainers, and the vendors and information tents, there was definitely a lot going on. Soundgarden singer Chris Cornell said, it was like being at a really big playground. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Lollapalooza wasn't the only touring festival in the summer of 1992. John Popper from the New Jersey-based rock band Blues Traveler put together a neo-hippie festival called Horde, which was short for the clunky name Horizons of Rock Developing Everywhere. The seven-hour show visited eight cities on the East Coast only and featured new-era jam bands like Fish and the Spin Doctors, who had released their debut studio album Pocketful of Kryptonite a year earlier. Inspired by the Lollapalooza model, organizers of Horde invited various political groups to set up booths at each stop, alongside vendors selling clothes and other trinkets. By 1993, concert promoters had fully embraced the traveling festival format, offering special package tours for almost every conceivable niche in the music market. Blues, heavy metal, reggae, alternative, and Christian music. There was even something called Kids Fest 93, which was headlined by Alvin and the Chipmunks. All of these festivals were chasing the same dollars. And although the competition was incredible, the original traveling festival, Lollapalooza, was still going strong. In the summer of 93, the main stage headliners included Allison Chains, Primus, Arrested Development, and Rage Against the Machine, which had graduated from the side stage. We need a woman with a quickness. Do you want a witness of change in the counter? We gotta take the power back! At the July 18th stop at Philadelphia's JFK Stadium, the guys from Rage Against the Machine decided to use their stage time to protest parental advisory stickers on albums. You may remember the stickers were the result of a campaign to protect American youth from harmful influences in music. Led by Tipper Gore, the committee behind the campaign was called the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC. In 1993, the stickers had been around for a while, but they were still a source of controversy. When Rage Against the Machine took to the stage that night, they came out completely naked. Each member of the band had tape across his mouth and painted the letters PMRC on their chests. Without saying a word, they stood naked in front of the audience of about 30,000 people for a full 15 minutes, using up their entire time slot. Initially, they were greeted with cheers of support, but when fans realized the band wasn't going to perform at all, many started to boo and throw things. Backstage, Rage's singer, Zach De La Roca, said they made the decision shortly before the show to make a statement about censorship. Instead of performing protest songs, he said, quote, We wanted to say it up front rather than having people feel their political responsibility is upheld simply by clapping along. Despite the protest by Rage Against the Machine, some fans attending the 93 tour complained that the event was losing its alternative edge. There was still plenty of moshing and crowd surfing, but it was definitely becoming more commercial, with less political booths in the village and more vendors selling stuff. Meantime, a brand new music festival was about to blast into cities across North America, bringing the skate punk subculture to the masses. The Warped Tour began in June 1995 and was the brainchild of 33-year-old Kevin Lyman, the owner of a Los Angeles-based live event production company. The former skateboarder had grown up in Southern California and noticed that the people who listened to hardcore, punk, and ska were the same people into extreme sports. And he recognized an opportunity 
He had also worked as a stage manager at Lollapalooza, and that's when he came up with the idea to create what he called a punk rock summer camp that promoted skate culture in a way that had never been done outside of regional events in California. Borrowing the name Warped from the popular surf, skate, and snow magazine Warp, Lyman's goal was to keep the event low-key with a DIY punk aesthetic. And more importantly, he vowed to keep ticket prices cheap. In 1995, a ticket would have only cost you about 15 bucks. In addition to a traveling caravan of bands, the 25-city tour brought a crew of professional skateboarders, inline skaters, and BMX riders to entertain fans during the seven-hour event. Incidentally, it was held during the day the first year, since the crowd skewed younger than other festivals like Lollapalooza and Horde. Each stop had skate facilities, including an 11-foot-tall, 40-foot-long halfpipe, where fans could watch celebs like vert skaters Remy Stratton, Steve Alba, and Mike Frazier as they performed high-flying stunts. There was also a 26-foot climbing wall that concertgoers could tackle for a $1 donation to charity. Headliners the first year included Sublime, No Doubt, and L7, an all-female metal punk band out of Los Angeles who were known for their song, Pretend We're Dead. Like Lollapalooza had set out to do four years earlier with the alt music scene, Warped brought the skate punk scene to cities where it didn't exist. It gave teenagers a taste of what was happening in other parts of the country. And like Lollapalooza, Warped was a huge hit. But despite getting a small sponsorship from Converse and Spin Magazine, Lyman's tour did not make money. In fact, by the end of the first tour, it was in serious financial trouble. A second Warped tour seemed very unlikely. But then a big sponsor stepped in to save the day. Vans, the iconic Southern California maker of sneakers and snowboard boots, wrote a check for $300,000, and the event officially became the Vans Warped Tour. Vans president Paul Van Doren said at the time the brand was really strong in SoCal, but they wanted to find a way to get it out to the youth of America. And sponsoring the Warped Tour seemed like a perfect way to do it. No one seemed to mind the contradiction that a punk rock festival had become a massive marketing machine, which in the end isn't very punk rock. In 1996, the lineup featured Blink-182, who had yet to sign with a major record label, as well as Pennywise, Fishbone, and ska punk legends, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Boss Tones lead singer Dickie Barrett was proud to be part of the Warp Tour saying it helped unify people. Skaters, skinheads, hippies, rude boys, and rude girls were all brought together in one crowd. That same year, another new music festival joined the circuit, and the musicians performing at this one were interested only in one thing, headbanging. OzFest was conceived by the brilliant Sharon Osbourne, 
wife and manager of Ozzy Osbourne, after she unsuccessfully tried to get Ozzy added to the lineup at Lollapalooza. Sharon said at the time, well, F them. If Lollapalooza isn't able to see what Ozzy can give them, then we'll come up with our own metal version, only better. But it was a slow start for Ozfest. The first year, it only went to two locations, Phoenix, Arizona on October 25th and Devor, California the next day. That's because the Osbournes were testing the waters, seeing whether there was enough demand for such an extravaganza and whether it could become an annual event. Ozzy, the godfather of heavy metal, was of course the headliner. Joining him was a lineup of certified metal legends. According to Loudwire, Slayer and Sepultura delivered a brutal thrashing, while Danzig howled through his first and last Ozfest appearance. Earth Crisis and Biohazard repped the New York hardcore scene, and Neurosis unleashed a towering avant-garde sonic tumult on the second stage. With that kind of energy, it's no surprise the response to Ozfest was overwhelmingly positive. And as a result, it became a full-fledged traveling summer festival the next year in 1997, visiting 22 U.S. cities. Ozzy performed double headliner duty, performing both with his solo band and a reunited Black Sabbath minus drummer Bill Ward. Also on the lineup were Pantera, Fear Factory, and Power Men 5000 along with the ever-controversial Marilyn Manson, who performed at select dates, despite attempts to have him pulled from the lineup. Manson was slated to join as one of the main stage headliners on June 15, 1997, at Giant Stadium in New Jersey. But the planning and zoning agency for the venue threatened to cancel the date if the shock rocker was part of the show. They said Manson posed a security risk and was offensive to public morals. Ozzy refused to remove Manson, saying at the time, nobody has the right to tell me who I can perform with. I will not be putting any limits on any of the Ozfests. This is not an issue of taste. It is an issue of civil liberty and freedom. Manson's team filed a civil suit against the operators of the stadium, saying the performer's rights would be violated if he were excluded from taking the stage. In the end, a judge ruled in Manson's favor, saying it appears patently unreasonable that Giant Stadium would permit an entire concert of heavy metal bands while excluding only Marilyn Manson, who has demonstrated no propensity for illegal activities on stage. That didn't stop protesters from showing up outside Giant Stadium the night Ozfest was in town. They handed out pamphlets that read, Satan is real and there is eternal damnation. Inside, temperatures rose into the 80s on the floor of the stadium as Pantera took the stage for a mid-afternoon set. As Dimebag Daryl wailed on the guitar, hundreds of metal fans jumped over the barricades, separating the stands from the field. State troopers and stadium staff responded by tackling as many crashers as possible and chasing others into the crowd. Later, as the sun went down and headliners Black Sabbath took the stage, the scene was repeated. Earlier that summer, another mini-riot broke out when Ozfest visited Columbus, Ohio. Fans lit brush fires, smashed box office windows, and started throwing things at stadium staffers when Ozzy became ill and was unable to perform. Meantime, Lollapalooza was having its own problems. 
1996, Perry Farrell had stepped down from his role as an advisor on lineups so he could focus on a new EDM festival. Farrell had lost much of his control of Lollapalooza, which was now run by music executives, and he was fed up with how mainstream the festival was becoming. And as if to prove his point, Lollapalooza 96 featured Metallica as the headliner, who at the time dominated mainstream rock radio with singles like Enter Sandman and Sad But True from their mega-selling Black album. The festival had strayed far from its alternative roots, which made fans angry. And it didn't help when Lollapalooza organizer Mark Geiger defended the decision to book Metallica by saying that alternative music was dead. Even still, Geiger and Lollapalooza's other organizers found themselves doing damage control. And they turned to Perry Farrell, convincing him to come back on board. His EDM festival, which he liked to call Earth's Bar Mitzvah, hadn't really panned out anyway. So Farrell set out to reclaim Lollapalooza's edge by selecting a lineup that he believed reflected the festival's original intent to showcase a mixture of underexposed alternative bands. But for many, the 97 lineup, which included metal bands Tool and Korn, along with rapper Snoop Dogg, Trip Hopper Tricky, and the Britpop band James, missed the mark again. Music journalists said the festival, which was in its seventh year, was at best suffering a midlife crisis and at worst was on its deathbed. They said Lollapalooza had lost its grip and was desperately searching for an identity. Some took to calling it Lousy Palooza or Snooza Palooza. Either way, ticket sales suffered big time. For example, when the tour hit Toronto, it was held at Kingswood Music Theatre at Canada's Wonderland, which can hold about 15,000 people. But only 65% of the seats sold. It barely resembled Perry Farrell's original version of a traveling sideshow for Alternative Nation. Concession stands stood empty and staffers hung around looking bored. Afternoon acts on the second stage played to crowds of fewer than 20 people. In previous years, when Lollapalooza came to the Toronto area, it sold out Molson Park in Barrie, which holds 35,000 people. Meantime, there was another new traveling summer festival making the rounds, and this one, which put women first, was a huge success. Canadian singer Sarah McLaughlin tipped from alternative icon to pop star in 1993 with her crossover album Bumbling Towards Ecstasy, which sold over three and a half million copies. Even with her success, she still felt the sting of sexism in the music industry. Yes, the 90s were definitely a time when we saw a dramatic increase in the number of popular female artists. But it was still rare that two women were put on the same bill, and certainly never three. Even on radio, some DJs operated under an unwritten rule that female artists should not be played back-to-back. -back. So in 1996, when Sarah McLaughlin played a handful of shows with an all-female lineup that included Paula Cole, Lisa Loeb, and Suzanne Vega, she thought, why can't we take something like this on the road? Lilith Fair, named after the first wife of Adam in the Bible, kicked off the next year. It was the first-ever woman-centric music festival. And to be clear, McLaughlin always maintained it was about celebrating and showcasing women. It wasn't about hating men. Joining McLaughlin at Lilith in 1997 were some of the biggest female artists of the moment, 
Cheryl Crow, Jewel, Fiona Apple, Tracy Chapman, and the Indigo Girls, whose music you might know from 2023's Barbie movie. And the less I seek my source for some definitive, closer I am to find. Just like Lollapalooza and some of the other festivals, Lilith Fair 97 included a second stage and a village of vendors and information booths. The tour also donated $1 from every ticket to local charities. Much to the surprise of everyone who said that an all-female roster wouldn't be viable, Lilith Fair was a massive hit. In fact, it was the number one touring summer festival of 1997 earning over $16 million across its 37 North American dates. That equals about $432,000 a stop, which was far ahead of Lollapalooza, which earned about $294,000 a stop in 1997. But there was some criticism for Sarah McLaughlin's festival the first year, especially when it came to diversity. The 97 lineup led some to call Lilith a white chick folk festival. So in the second year, Sarah McLaughlin worked with organizers to intentionally add more artists of color to the ticket. Erica Badu and Queen Latifah joined the main stage, along with the up-and-coming Missy Elliott, who made her debut live performance at Lilith in a giant vinyl trash bag-inspired suit. When Lilith Fair kicked off its third tour in 1999, McLaughlin announced it would be the last. She was ready to start a family with her drummer and then-husband Ashwin Soot. Plus, McLaughlin said she wanted the festival to go out on a high note and to maintain its integrity. She was proud of what they had accomplished and didn't want to ruin it by overstaying their welcome. Which is kind of what Lollapalooza did. Following the lackluster 1997 tour, organizers were unable to secure any headlining acts for the summer of 98 and as a result, called off the tour that year. They promised to return the next year, but didn't launch another tour until 2003, which was also plagued with financial issues and didn't repeat the next year. Finally, in 2005, Lollapalooza gave up its touring model, and with the help of new financial backers, Farrell launched a four-day destination festival in Chicago, which is still held annually in Grant Park. The Horde Festival also called it quits in 1998 after a seven-year run, although it was resurrected in 2015 for a one-off event in Detroit. And as for OzFest, it persevered, as did the Prince of Darkness himself, and it continued annually almost every year until 2018, when Sharon Osbourne pulled the plug because the tour was no longer cost-effective. Meanwhile, the tour, inspired by the youthful SoCal lifestyle, outdid them all, lasting 24 years. The final Vans Warped Tour was in 2019. But these days, the Warped Tour's success is entangled with a legacy of toxic masculinity and sexual aggression. In 1999, the New York Times music journalist Ann Powers described a scene similar to Woodstock 99, where a testosterone-fueled crowd became unsafe for women. Powers reported that during the Warp Tour stop in Rome, New York, numerous Warped performers shouted nasty remarks at the ladies in the crowd, culminating in Blink-182's Mark Hoppus suggesting that female fans come up to the stage to sexually service his bandmates. 
And over the years, several of the male musicians who have performed at Warped have been embroiled in sexual misconduct scandals outside of the tour, including Ian Watkins of Lost Profits, who pleaded guilty to child sex charges, and Jake McElfresh, aka Front Porch Step, who was allowed to perform in 2015 after he was accused of sending inappropriate images and messages to minors. Over 13,000 people signed a petition to have him removed from the lineup, but Warped co-founder Kevin Lyman said McElfresh had not been formally charged with a crime, so he would let him remain on the tour. A few years later, Lyman expressed regret for letting Front Porch Step perform. There is no denying, however, that Warped helped break the careers of several artists, including Fallout Boy, Paramore, and Blink-182. And you may be surprised to know that Katy Perry cut her teeth on the Warp Tour in 2008, just as her song, I Kissed a Girl, was blowing up. In the years since Lollapalooza first set the template for the Summer Music Festival, a lot has changed. Gone are the days of traveling around North America, bringing a lifestyle and a vibe to fans hungry for new music. In its place, we have big, extravagant festivals over multiple days that stay in one place, showcasing the biggest stars of the day, like Bonnaroo and Coachella, which typically grosses over $115 million in ticket sales across the two-weekend event, plus tens of millions more in food, beverage, and hospitality. It's a far cry from the $6 million Lollapalooza made during 22 stops in 1991. But then again, Lollapalooza tickets were only about $25, while a weekend pass for Coachella starts at $500. Thanks for joining me on this look back at some of the traveling summer music festivals of the 90s. This idea was suggested by Punk Barger, who sent me a message through social media. You can send me messages too. You can find me on Instagram at that90spodcast. You can also reach me by email. The address is 90s at curiouscast.ca. That's 90s at curiouscast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Deal Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more history of the 90s.